Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. We'll be right back to today's show. But before we do, I want to let you know that you can get a free copy of my first book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma, when you leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, either on desktop or on your phone. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, look up Think Unbroken, click follow in the top right, and then go and leave a review at the bottom. And when you leave that review, screenshot it and send it over to book.thinkunbroken.com where you can upload your contact and mailing information, and we will send you a free copy of this award-winning, best-selling book, absolutely free, including shipping. Just go to book.thinkunbroken.com to upload your screenshot review from Apple Podcasts for the Think Unbroken podcast. And until next time, my friend, be unbroken. I'll see you. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show. But I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of live coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. Hey, what's up, Unbroken Nation? Hope that you're doing well wherever you are in the world today. I'm very excited to be back with you with another episode with Moran Cerf, who is a neuroscientist and business professor at the Kellogg School of Management and Neuroscience Program at Northwestern University. My friend, how are you today? It is such a pleasure to have you here. I'm very excited. I'm very excited too. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry that I have a running nose, so you're going to hear me blow my nose every now and then. Uh, uh, and I don't know, some of the L's are going to sound like N's or something like that. What I... <laughs> hey, no, we're, you know what, man? We're all having a human experience, and I think we all have been through that. I would have to guess if you're like me and you've just done so much media, at some point you're just like, whatever, it's fine. I'm just a person. <laughs> I, guess, so... I was thinking like if I, if I tried my best, it will just kind of come out inauthentic. I should just come clean and say, this is what you're going to hear. I'll do my best, but uh, you will just see flaws me. Yeah. And, and you know what, that's the best we can ever ask of anyone. Right. So no, knowing your research and your background, I, I've been fascinated when I came across you a few years ago on impact theory with our, our friend, Tom Billy show, because I am a person who throughout the course of my life has, I, I pretty much lucid dream on a daily basis. And it's very rare, if ever, that I run into other people who have had this experience as well. And when I came across you and your work and I was like, oh, this is really fascinating. A lot of this makes a ton of sense. But what I'm having back and forth in dialogue with other people about trying to explain what it's like to be in this weird, semi-controlled matrix type environment, like they don't really connect the dots. So to start with, I'd love if you would just simply explain lucid dreams, what they are and why you've decided to study them. Sure. So lucid dreams are a, a unique experience when you're still asleep and you're still dreaming, but your consciousness wakes up, meaning you are aware of your dream and you know that you're dreaming so you can actually direct them. And you can say, you know what? I'm dreaming. It's a dream, but I can do whatever I want here. So I'm going to fly. That's what everyone does when they just begin and they just rise up in the air and they start flying and it feels real because it's your brain creating the imagery. So you actually fly above New York City or LA or San Francisco, but it's 
still an experience that your body is new to. So it's fascinating and fantastic. And people choose all kinds of things when they do a dream. They bring people that they have not seen for a while into their dream and they can get to chat with grandma or they can uh, see how it would be to uh, go back to the job that they left and regret leaving and seeing if it's still nice in memory right now, all kinds of experiences. So that's what this dreaming is. The thing is, it's rare. Most people don't experience that, definitely not a uh, Voluntarily, like some people encounter or stumble upon lucid dreams randomly, but rarely people can go to sleep and say tonight, I want to wake up at noon and while I'm sleeping, taking a nap and have a uh, control of the dream. And this was reserved to about 10 to 12% of the people in the world who randomly encountered that. And the rest of the people just heard about it, but didn't experience that. And what we learned in the last couple of years is how to give it to anyone. That's fascinating to me. Where, what is the function and purpose that lucid dreaming actually serves for the brain? So it, it's not clear to us. We don't know what dreams are for, so let alone lucid dreams. Uh, we have all kinds of theories and I can list a few of them, just give you a taste, but the list is long. There's about seven theories right now that are vying for dominance on who is the uh, kind of ruler of dreams, but essentially they, they suggest things that kind of range from, they mean nothing. It's just a random thing that your brain does when you go to sleep without any purpose, other than to keep being active to very meaningful things along the lines of Freud, that it's your way of dealing with things that are buried in your mind, but you don't want to deal with them when you're awake. So your brain creates a movie for you to handle them. I'll give you an example of two, so you can kind of get a truth. And what I mean. uh, so one theory that uh, people wouldn't like because it kind of gives dreams no meaning is one where uh, because your eyes are shut when you're sleeping and no input comes through your retina, the part of the brain that processes visuals is inactive. It's not doing anything. And what we know about brains is that if a part of the brain is not active for too long, other parts take over. So in many, many blind people, for instance, because their eyes don't function, the part of the brain that's supposed to process visuals is taken over by auditory functions and they get to hear better, but they just don't have activity in the occipital lobe when they see things. So the theory that I'm speaking about suggests that because overnight for say seven hours, this part of the brain doesn't get an input, there's a chance that it's going to be taken over overnight. You're going to wake up and suddenly this part of the brain isn't doing what it's supposed to do. So to protect that part, the brain created a mechanism that creates artificial made up visuals inside just so this part keeps seeing things and not falling asleep. And that's how the brain protects itself. So dreams in that case mean nothing. It's just a brain creating all kinds of random fractalic images that we then make up into a story. But the point is that it means nothing. That's one side of the theory, the one that people don't like because it means that dreams are not really, you know, unique. On the other extreme, there's a theory that comes from our lab that says that dreams are our brain's way of uh, basically doing VR. So the brain takes things that are, you're thinking about right now that you're considering, like you think, okay, should I have a baby? And you're not sure about that. Instead of going to a baby in real life and realizing whether you're not a good, whether you're good or not parent, the brain creates a simulation where you actually have this baby and you live through it. And because dreams feel real while you dream them, other parts of the brain don't know that it's a made up scenario. The brain thinks it's real. So the feelings come up naturally. And all the fears and reward system activity and pain and pleasure, all of those happen the same way. So that when you wake up, even though you forget the dream, all the systems are kind of 
geared towards how it would feel like, and then when you think about it in the real world, you have better sense of what to do. So dreams are basically a simulation of things you consider so that you get better preparation when you're awake. So I'll give you just two, there are seven more. There's five more, so yeah, there's seven total. That the this the latter makes a lot of sense to me because it feels almost as if that would and I think it'd be contextual in the simu the situation would almost be a preface for a for survival mechanism to kick in right because if your brain says no I cannot possibly be a parent then automatically you try to deter from that because how would you protect that child in the wild right that's where my brain goes for it right one of the things I'm I'm curious about in that is you know we see so many people trying to make meaning of dreams and with there being seven different variations of what that could actually be it feels like to some extent like this is pseudoscience and i know initially you had said a, a while ago god this was years ago that you you didn't want to step into the world of dreams because you you had said on on tom's show i believe it was something to the extent of without having certainty that something is impossible you didn't want to step into it and so you know, having that switch, being able to now step into this world, what is it that has surprised you about dreaming that you didn't know or expect? Okay, so I'll give you, I'll give you kind of two sentences on each idea that you just mentioned. First of all, I would say the meaning part is a very human thing. We want to have meaning for everything we do. So we attribute meaning to things even if they're random. You, you play basketball twice with the same underwear and you win and you say, oh my God, this is my lucky underwear. So, so true. Natural state of like trying to make sense of the world. There's too much randomness around us. So our brain tries to put meaning everywhere. And that's a natural thing of the brain. As long as we are aware of it, we're able to control it. Sometimes we say, you know what? It's probably not the underwear. It's probably me practicing that made it. And then you can practice more and actually get better. But at the same time, it's nice to observe and become aware of the fact that your brain so much is into coming up with explanations and meaning all the time. Because if you're aware of that, you can control it and you can enjoy it and you can also regulate that. Like you can say, this is not the right meaning. So now, why am I saying that? Second, because for the last 100 years, most of what we talked about when we spoke about dreams had to do with this meaning-making machine that wasn't reality. What I mean by that? Freud, for instance, the kind of godfather of dreams, he never saw a dream in his life. All he had was the story that people told him when they woke up. So in many ways, I'm in a much better shape than Freud was throughout his career because I can use neuroscience to look at people's dreams while they're dreaming them. I can put a probe in their brain and see their dreams. So I can see what happens in their brain when they're dreaming. I don't need them to wake up and tell me a story. But Freud didn't have that. He had to wake up the person, ask them, hey, tell me what did you dream of? And then the person told him a story. And what we know for sure is that the story people tell when they wake up is colored by their awake self view of the world. So they make meaning. So the dream might have had just a woman in a blue dress, but you waking up have this visual in your brain and you say, I saw my mom. We don't know if it was a mom even, but you add the meaning, the kind of salt and the, the spices to the visual. And now Freud deals with you talking about your mom. Now it's not that it's useless. The fact that you make up the story about your mom is interesting, but we should know that this isn't a dream. So we're in a much better shape than Freud was in that we can actually look at dreams. So the meaning part, we can strip off. We can say, I don't care about the meaning. I will tell you what the dream was. And now we can come up with the meaning together rather than me having to rely on your flawed story. Now, to kind of the, the bigger, bigger question you asked me, which is kind of like, uh, how do I deal with that when I kind of myself? I think that what I do and I, what I, as an advice to everyone say is 
it's a, it's a game to play. And in that sense, there are many ways to play this game and they're all valuable. For example, I'm not too spiritual a person in that I don't really go to mysticians and, and, you know, have people tell me my fortune by looking at cups of coffee or open tarot cards for me or, or stuff like that. But I advocate for that in the following way. I don't think that anyone can actually tell your future by looking at your coffee cup. But I think that the exercise of having you come up with a story, like whatever, I give you a shape in a coffee and I tell you, come up with a story for that. It's your brain's going to come up with a story. And in that sense, it's just the prompt for you and someone to talk about things. And talking is really important. So you having someone else in front of you, open Harry Potter in page 77, pick a word and say, what does this word mean to you? And you come up with a story. It's just a way for you and that person to start engaging in an exercise, understanding yourself and making meaning. And making meaning is how our brain works. So if you make the brain do that, you're going to get access to the brain that you can use to understand and make yourself better. One of the things I'm curious about as, as the years have passed, my, my dreams have gone, my lucid dreams specifically have gone from these very nightmarish scenarios, like the worst things that you could possibly imagine where I have full cognition of the reality outside of the dream to now being on the other side of it, where for the most part, they're very beautiful. They're, you know, they are things like flying or speaking on big stages or, you know, conversations like this with incredible people where I can kind of like see it happening and feel those emotions. Why is it like, and I don't know if this is for everyone. So this is going to be a, a question particular to me because I've never been able to ask anyone. Why is it that I'm able to be cognizant of time? Because I will be in dreams in the moment and I will know it is 5.17 a.m. And I will be spot on and it is so creepy. And sometimes like there'll be hours that I feel pass in these dreams. Why does that happen? So first of all, you're lucky, I should say, to be among the 12% who can lucid dream regularly, maybe even on demand. Now, the nice thing about that is that you're not only lucky, you're also useful because a lot of scientists have asked the same question you ask. What about time and dreams? And the way we answer that, which I'm going to tell you in a second what the answer is, was by using people like you as subjects in a lab. So now to the kind of climatic answer. Scientists have been asking the question that you just asked for decades. They said, what is the notion of time in dream? Some people think that uh, when you're dreaming, time kind of is fast forward. And some people think that, no, it slows down because you can actually kind of pause the dream and look at things. And they just had this question for a while. Is time in dream equal or different or better or, I don't know, not linear as uh, compared to time in real world? And because of lucid dreamers, we could finally figure that out. So here's how we did it. And in a second, the answer. The way we did it is we took people like you, lucid dreamers, and we asked you when you're awake to essentially clap your hands like this and start counting in your mind from zero to 20. So you do this and you count from zero to 20. And I think that in the original experiment, they actually even asked people to do it such that it aligns with 20 seconds. So kind of count 20 seconds, not just like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 20, but like one, two, three, four, two, to basically count 20 seconds. Okay, so you do that when you're awake. And we have a stopwatch that we use to measure how good are you in basically counting 20 seconds. So let's say you start at zero, we have the clock, we start the, the counter timer, you start counting, and maybe we see that when you think it's 20 seconds, it's actually 21, but fine, you're pretty good. Now we teach you the following. We say when you're 
dreaming and you wake up in your dream, as in your lucid dreaming, your eyes are going to still be closed, but you can control your eyelids. So what we ask you to do is signal to us by moving your eyelids up and down while you're dreaming and while you're still in the dream and controlling it, to signal to us, people on the outside, that you're awoken. And once you do that, signal to us by moving your eyelids kind of in a cross move, like left, right, left, right, up, down, up, down, left, right, left, right, up, down, that you're starting. This is the parallel to the clap. And then in your dream, count from zero to 20. And when you get to 20, signal to us again that you got 20 in the same way. And then we're going to start stopwatch with you dreaming and counting from zero to 20. And we'll see how similar is time in your dream to time in the real world to time mm. actually by stopwatch. And the answer, drumroll, is it's the same. So mm. it turns out that time in dreams is parallel to time in the real world, at least among most dreamers, and that they're very accurate in time. So what seems to be the case is that lucid dreamers generally are people that have accurate time perception, even as an awake person. This partially is why you lucid dream, because it means that your consciousness is able to basically get, get up on an exact window of time in your dream, which is why you lucid dream. But it also means that you're very accurate in counting to 20 regularly. If I just asked you right now to count from zero to 20, 20 seconds, you're gonna, pretty, gonna be pretty accurate. And turns out you're gonna also be pretty accurate in the same accuracy when you're dreaming, which gave the answer, the time in dreams is linear going forward and same in the real world, despite all people's ideas that it's not. That's absolutely fascinating to me because I've always, that's been my hypothesis since I was a kid because I, I could, be in these dreams for hours. One of the things I'm curious about, so many of the people that I've spoken with who are lucid dreamers, and I don't know if there's an association here, so I'm just throwing something at you to see what your thoughts are, is that they had traumatic childhood experiences. I also had traumatic childhood experiences. And what I'm wondering is, are in any capacity lucid dreams a defensive mechanism for survival so that you don't go like all the way into deep sleep so that you are aware of your surroundings while sleeping to stay safe? So, okay, so, so I'll say one just thing that I want to correct on the previous point, and then I'll answer about the, the, the trauma thing. First of all, it's correct. Dreams are like movies. So while time in a dream is perfectly aligned with time in reality, it also allows you to cut and move forward. So, you know, in movies, you can see the person when they're a five-year-old, cut, now they're 15, cut, now they're 20. Same thing happened in your dream. So it's not that if you see a dream of you, you have to wait 17 years to become an adult in your dream. You can jump like this. So, so in that sense, dreams allow us to jump in time. But when you're going to, when you're walking in the street, it will be the same pace that you walk in the room. So that's just a correction to what I said before. Time is time, but you can still cut uh, the dream whatever way you want and speed up things or slow down things if you want. Okay, now to your question about trauma. So first of all, we don't have any evidence that lucid dreams are more likely among people who have trauma. It's actually pretty random. Like people who can lucid dream, they're anywhere. I also will say that what we call deep sleep is actually not the dream state. Dream state is closest to being awake. In fact, other than uh, the fact that your eyes are closed, if you look at the brain of someone when they're, when they're dreaming generally, not even lucid dreaming, when they're dreaming, the brain looks like it's awake. So the only way we know that they're dreaming is that they are still asleep, that their eyes are still closed. They have this thing called the rapid eye movement where the eyes move and that's a signal that they're in the REM stage. But in a way, dreams look like awake state. Mm. And brain-wise, it's very much similar. Like all the systems in the brain think you're awake. They don't even know that you're in a simulation right now. They think you're in the real world. So what we call deep sleep is actually a different stage in night, 
that happens just before your dream. It's stage three. It's like the slowest part of the night. That's that, that's that. So now to the to the trauma thing. While we have no evidence that trauma has to do with lucid dreaming or anything, what we do know is that lucid sort people with trauma who uh, became able to control their dreams, lucid dream, are able to navigate the trauma because two things happen. One is if you have a nightmare, you can just get out of it. So a lot of the studies we do are studies that take people with trauma and we just give them the power to lucid dream. And then in their dream, they can fix things. So imagine that you were in Afghanistan and the attack exploded and you have a trauma of this explosion again and again. We can now give you essentially the power to change the, the movie. We wake you up, so to speak, during the uh, re-dreaming of the explosion in Afghanistan. But this time you save your friend or this time you run out of the tank. Or, so, so in a way, we give your brain a chance to create a different VR experience where things are better. So that's one use. The other one is, of course, we can just wake you up. We can just say, okay, if you're going through a nightmare and you just don't want to be there, instead of enduring it, we can make you get out of it. Just wake up. That, that's a control that you can have when you lose dream. And the third thing, and that's the most loose one, but that's the one we explore the most right now, is because we know that during sleep, the brain essentially kind of reprogram itself. The brain changes things. We can essentially uh, help your brain eliminate trauma entirely. We can shuffle memories or uh, strengthen memories or weaken other experiences so that when you wake up, the nightmare is no longer as powerful, not just in a simulation. So not just can we use the lucid dream to make you have better dreams, we can also use them as a way to fix things so that when you wake up, the same nightmare looks less terrifying to you as an awake person. That's fascinating. Is this within the same structure as like when you give someone the scent of rotten eggs and nicotine to get them to quit smoking? And if so, can you explain the science behind that? Sure. So, so I'll explain the nicotine experiment first so you, people get a sense of that. And then I'll tell you the thing. I'm also going to make it a little bit more tangible. How do we do that? We kind of said we can help people, but let me tell you how it's done. So, so first of all, the, the, the nicotine uh, rotten eggs kind of uh, adage to explain what it is is a study that came in 2015 that uh, was one of the first studies to show that you can change awake behavior by doing things to the brain of a sleeping person. So in that study, people came to the lab. They didn't know what they're coming for, but the only thing that uh, the scientists knew was that all of the people who came were smokers. So the recruitment was for people who are very heavy smokers. And these people came for a nap. It was in the afternoon. And they were told, don't sleep much the night before, don't eat much. And then you come to the lab and you go to sleep. So you take a nap in the lab and the scientists measure your brain activity while you're sleeping. And they wait for you to get to the stage, uh, that, that deep sleep stage, that slow sleep uh, stage, that the part where your brain is in the deepest state. And it's essentially re, re kind of activating memories or thinking about things from the past and trying to decide if they should be strengthened or weakened. And hey, Unbroken Nation, we'll be right back to the show but I wanted to let you know that you can grab a copy of my first book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma for free. If you go to book.thinkunbroken.com, you can download the PDF ebook version of the book and get everything that I know about the baseline of healing trauma for free downloaded to your email right now. Just go to book.thinkunbroken.com to download your copy of Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma for a PDF for your phone. Again, that is book.thinkunbroken.com. In that moment, when your brain is in this stage, what the scientists do is they spray into your nose a smell 
that's a prompt for a memory. In a particular case, we spray the smell of nicotine into the nose. This essentially makes the brain choose of all the memories that it kind of evaluates right now to evaluate smoking. So it's a reminder for the brain that of all the things you can think about right now, we want to think about smoking. And then the brain kind of points the arrow, if you want, of which memory I'm going to explore right now to let's explore smoking. So that's step one. We kind of point out. And the next thing is that we then spray the smell of rotten eggs. Now, the smell of rotten eggs is a bad smell. It makes people feel not good. But it's also known as a smell that in some dosage it can penetrate your brain without waking you up. Most bad smells just wake you up. You just become kind of awoken with bad experience. This one is a unique smell among many, but it's kind of that share the same trait, but it's a smell that penetrates your brain, make you think bad things about whatever you're thinking about right now, but not wake up. And that kind of combination means that you're now pointing to nicotine and feeling bad about it. And we do it again and again. We spray it in the same dosage multiple times in a very short window. So nicotine, hot and eggs, nicotine, hot and eggs. And this essentially makes your brain rewire. So it actually changed the wiring to the memory of nicotine that are bringing bad things. So now you have a lot of bad things about nicotine. This happens overnight. You don't know anything about it. Also over a nap, it could be in the afternoon. But you, when you wake up, you have no idea what happened. All you know is that you went to sleep for two hours. But what happened in this particular study was that people went back home and they were asked to report how much they want to smoke in the next couple of days. And many didn't want to smoke at all. And they reported a drop to 100% in that case from a lot of tax to zero over the next couple of days because their brain just now has a bad association with smoking. Mm. There are some kind of nuances here. Many other people actually came back afterwards, which, which means that probably we need to do it again and again to, to strengthen it, not just one night. Uh, you probably can do it more than just in a two-hour nap, but over multiple nights and, and multiple times at the night. And, and, but this opened up the kind of the, the idea that you can do things to a sleeping brain that will change awake behavior. And now we're doing it with many other things. We make people smoke less or eat healthy or exercise more or avoid trauma. And that's the same idea. You have to point the pointer, the, the kind of the index to the memory you want to change in the right time. And then either make it stronger positively or stronger negatively and so on. So now this was the explanation. Now I'm going to end with telling you about lucid dreams. And this is where I'm going to disappoint some of your audience by saying that uh, uh, we know how to give nearly everyone this experience. We got to a very high percentage when we tried to do that, but the method is quite cumbersome. It requires uh, tools and a scientist in your bedroom. Uh, so unless you want me in everyone's bedroom, <laughs> Uh, it requires a little bit of like uh, advanced uh, uh, technology. So the way we do it is we have you come to the lab and go to sleep. And before you go to sleep, we put something on your head that's known as EEG. It's a device that measures your productivity. Uh, it's kind of like a swim cap that you put on your head and it broadcasts to a computer nearby the activity in various parts of your brain. So that's what you have to wear on your head when you're sleeping, already pretty uncomfortable. And then this device allows the scientist who sits in the other room and looks at the activity live while you're sleeping to identify the exact moment where your brain is getting to this REM stage, the part where you're looking like you're awake, but actually you're still asleep and you're in the dream state. And that's when you have to use another device called TMS or TDS or, or basically transcranial magnetic stimulator, something that, magnet, that, that uses magnets to stimulate the brain with magnetic energy in a specific location, specific frequency. That essentially what it does, it turns on some neurons in the front of your brain, 
which is where your consciousness, your, your executive functions are, and then wakes them up. But because the other part of the brain is still asleep, you become this unique moment of consciousness, but still dreaming, and you get to dreaming. So you have to have device that reads brain activity that you can wear while you're sleeping, scientists who can read the signals and know exactly when's the right moment and press a button to activate a different machine that stimulates the brain to wake, to wake you up, all of that so they can have this sleeping. And even that works with not everyone, but a lot more people. So as long as this is the level of cumbersomeness that it's required, I think that you either are lucky to be in the 12% that just naturally have that, or you're one of the people who really need it and kind of agreed to come to my lab and essentially sleep in the lab or are fortunate or wealthy enough to have someone come to your home and do it for you so you can get to everyone. In the near future, I think someone's going to commercialize that and productize that. So you will have companies offer you the entire service or the entire uh, uh, toolkit to do it in a better way, and then it will become everyone's. But for now, it's pretty only lab. Yeah, this is absolutely fascinating to me because the thing that I, I think of is being within the guise of hypnosis. I know it's obviously not the same thing, but looking at it and going, oh, you're restructuring, you're reprogramming, you're putting in new ideas, new understandings and reframings, right? Which is ultimately the thing that helps create change in your life. You have to be able to, to your point, make meaning, reframe things and be able to move forward justly. One of the things I'm curious about, and this is where we're going to kind of switch gears a little bit, is if what you're saying holds true, which obviously from the studies and research it does, well, where does free will and decision-making play a role in this? Okay. So first of all, I, I would say is a note that you were very right on the fact that it sounds like resembles hypnosis and more and more scientists are right now trying to find the link between the two. It's It's mm. kind of mysterious if you want that uh, the number of people who can actually be hypnotized naturally are about 12% as well and that hypnosis looks brain-wise very similar to lucid dreaming so there's a lot of similarities there that make people think maybe we're on something maybe it's the same idea and right now we're trying to do essentially the same studies that we did on lucid dreaming we try to do them on awake people to see if you can get them to lucid dream from awake rather than from already being asleep and in that sense that's kind of like hypnosis there's something there Okay, so that, that was just kind of a note that you're correct. And, and if someone from your audience is seeing this link, they're probably on the right kind of trajectory because science are trying to essentially figure out how to control brains that are in different states. And that's, that's all of there. Okay, so now to free will. Uh, pretty much every way you talk about the brain, you will end up talking about free will. It's kind of like physics. You talk about the, uh, any experiment in physics, you will end up in the Big Bang. Like, but, but how does it all begin? And that's kind of the, the puzzle of a lot of neuroscientists. So, you know, I can, I can do things and you can look at my brain and you can see that uh, you have residues of the things I did a few seconds before. That, that's something known. Like I'm asking you to choose between the pasta or the salad. I look at your brain. Before you say pasta, I can look at your brain and find signals that tell me in two seconds he's going to say pasta. But if you find no signals, you can say, well, could I not have found one a second before that? And before then, so and at some point you say, okay, at some point, either it becomes too noisy, like a chaos system that I can't predict, but it must be there. Or it came from thin air, which violates all the laws of physics. Like how could something come up or nothing? Or if you take the other extreme, if everything is dependent on something else, was my choice to have pasta determined when I was a baby? Or maybe when I was conceived or maybe, maybe my parents uh, were conceived because it's genetically triggered or... Is there any randomness? And boom, we're back in the kind of Big Bang. Like, is the entire universe 
predetermined or there's some overlap. Now, if you're religious, you have an answer, which is there is uh, something kind of beyond physics that explains the world. If you're not religious, you have to uh, kind of have some kind of a suspense of disbelief. You say, I don't know the answer, but I still operate as if it's true. And most scientists are not giving you good answers. All we can say is the following. First of all, we know that your experience of free will is flawed. Meaning even if you have free will, when you make the choice is way after the choice was made. Meaning when I ask you to choose pasta or, or salad, and you choose pasta, and I ask you, when did you choose? You say right now, when I said pasta. This is surely not true. If you look at your brain, we can definitely find the answer to choices you make seconds before you experience them. You will think it's now, but we already in your brain right now is the next question that you will think you came up with only when you ask it. So in that sense, we know that the experience is flawed. But what we don't know, and that's the kind of real question everyone wants, is when does it start? When is T0? When is the moment it comes up and where and how? And we have no answer. We are basically the same way all physicists are, which is we can explain everything from T0, Big Bang forward, but not the big question, which is just before that. So here's what I think is really interesting. My thought on it has always been, Free will is actually in my, and this is, again, I'm not a scientist nor a doctor. This is only my own experience. Free will is predetermined by learned behaviors that we absorb and, and see and observe through our adolescent stages. And my thought has always been, I'm only acting in accordance with the things that I understand to be true. Is that true? So. It, it, it's, it's basically a different way to say the same thing that, we, that we, we're struggling with, which is we don't know. So okay. yes, we know that some of your actions are predetermined and that the set of options that your brain have is not finite. It's, it's, sorry, finite. It's not, it's not infinite. Meaning even uh, all the things that you can think of are not everything in the world. You can think only of certain things that you know, that you can express, that you can experience. There, there are things that, that you cannot think because they're not part of your vocabulary of, of thoughts. And those things were like things that you learned in your life. It, it, the more you know things, the more things you can think about. And you just cannot think things that you're not aware of, even though some people out there are aware of things that you are not aware of, then they can think them. So the spectrum of things to think about are not aligned by all people. That's why some are so and some are not. Like some people can just see more things in the world and some are not. And they can see other things that he cannot see. So everyone has a different space. Now, we know to kind of make it more numerical that about 50% of your personality, what you think of as your traits that are stable, is genetic. So that's something that you were born with. Like the fact that you're an introvert, for instance, the fact that you're conscientious, the fact that you're neurotic, this is something that at least partially was in your genes the moment you were born. That is a big part, 50%. But it still leaves 50% for experiences, things that you learned over life. And even among those, it's divided roughly that 25%, so half of, of the 50% that is to, for you to determine uh, is uh, your parents' education. Like they kind of train you in the first five years of your life. And the remaining 25% or half of the entire part that is up to you is determined by your peer group in the first 17 years of your life. So that by the age of 17, you're pretty much set. Your personality is set. You can still do a lot of things. You can learn new things. You can act on different things, but personality, genetics, upbringing, and your parents' kind of education, if, if you want, determine personality by the age of 17. And from now on, you can still do things out of character, but it will take a toll on your brain. 
if you're an introvert and you would have to give a speech in front of tons of people, you can do that. It's not a problem for you. Your brain will allow you to, but when it's over, you're going to be more tired than an extrovert who gave the same talk and gets actually more energy from it. I love that you said that because that leads perfectly into the question that I have pondered for a very long time. I knew the question. I put it in your brain. I, I, everything, I know. I also know the next one. I know the one after. Brilliant. <laughs> now we're into the matrix and I love it. So, so here's what I think is really interesting. Growing up the way that I grew up, being homeless as a kid, being abused as a kid, uh, being obese as a kid, all of these things set up for financial failure, no high school diploma, no college education. You said something that hit me really hard. You, you can continue to do those things, right? But you can create change, but it takes this toll on the brain. For the last 12 years, I have been deep, 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 deep into neuropsychology, into understanding brain health and understanding physical health, uh, mindset, personal development, understanding all these things, which have allowed me to change my life. But what I'm really interested about is how do you know if your programming up to the age of 17 has said, you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not capable enough, you're a loser, you're dumb, you're never going to be anything, blah, 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 so on and so forth. How do you start to control, that's the word I want to use here, control your mind, your brain to be able to facilitate and make the right decisions to move you forward as opposed to self-sabotaging and destroying your life if free will is or is not a thing? So let, let's talk about, okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you a few concrete answers, but let, let's say the following. Uh, if you had bad experiences, they're part of who you are. That's it. Like the, the good and the bad. Is, is who we are. You won't forget that. You, you won't, you know, you won't want it. Like you don't want scientists to just pop in your brain and say, let's erase the memories. They're what makes you who you are positively. Like you know the sum of all the bad things and you can learn from them and you have some knowledge that others don't have and you can prepare for that and you can recognize bad things when they come faster than others who have not experienced them and you can respond to them because you're trying to practice. So there, there are things at least you can say there's positive there. It's not that I'm just doomed for failure. There are learnings that come from that that you can use. So that's that's kind of like a, a very broad self-help-ish idea of why bad things in the beginning are they're bad because they're bad experiences. They're not ever gonna become a good one, but they can be used for good in the future. So now how? So I'll say the following. Of the many things you can do, there are some practical things that are mechanical and some that are hopeful. Let's start with the hopeful. The science shows that the people you surround yourself with have a huge influence on your behavior day to day. It's what's called trait versus state behavior. So the traits are the things that are in your brain fixed, and you basically are always going to be an introvert. But if you're surrounded by extroverts, your state is going to be an extrovert, meaning you're going to behave different than what the natural state is. So if you put yourself around people that exhibit the things you want to become, it will rub on you and you will start shifting your personality towards that. You're an introvert, put yourself in a room full of extroverts, you will see that you become gradually more and more extroverted. You might still become an introvert when you come back home, but it will push you. You wanna be funny. Instead of learning how to be funny by reading 1,000 jokes, uh, books, if you sit with comedians all the time, you will somehow learn without even knowing that you learned how to become funny. You will see how timing works for them and how they think of the thing upside down and that's what makes it funny and how they riff off each other and you will start getting that without intentionally doing that like you won't say okay i'm gonna now learn how this comedian is saying things and i'm gonna replicate what she does you'll just sit there 
And at some point, you're going to leave the room and you're going to be funnier. And you say, hmm, I guess I learned something. I don't know when. So solution number one, that's the, I call it the less active one, the, the passive one, is you put yourself next to people and you let your brain really by osmosis learn to become different. So if you're coming from trauma and your tendencies are to go there when you're alone, put yourself next to people who have very different views and just force yourself to sit next to them. And then the passive part comes because your brain will learn without you saying, I'm going to write notes how to not think bad things right away, how to avoid eating uh, things that I don't want to eat. You put yourself next to healthy people, you will see that when they come to the menu, they order the healthy stuff and you will sit next to them and you order the healthy stuff because it's like part of the conformity of the group. But before long, you're going to lose weight and you're going to eat healthier. And at no point did you have to really say, I'm consciously for the next week, only vegetables and so on. It will become part of the natural stat because passively you will learn it. So we spoke of passively and I gave you one example, which is put a test to people like that. Actively. There are things that are really good for the brain when it comes to uh, healing it from bad things. Uh, sleep is very good. Uh, it's, it's not surprising that people, when they're sick, they sleep more. That's their brain saying, I need time to heal. I need all the energy. The brain it takes a lot more energy when you're sleeping than when you're awake. Most of the energy in the body goes to the brain. So the brain naturally has that, but if you're feeling uh, uh, bad, then, then depression is somehow a signature of that, is that sleeping a lot, but also it's how our brain essentially calibrates to dealing with things that it cannot deal with. So, so, so sleeping generally for every person is one good thing. Then exercise, that's another active one. People underestimate the power of the endorphins in your body in healing you and, and making you see clear behaviors. So you're feeling bad. It's hard to leave the bedroom. It's, you don't want to call people. You don't want to, that's something you can do in your bedroom by yourself and it will work. You, you will be surprised again and again, how this mechanical thing, you just do something, you just lift the weights without thinking it has any capacity to help you think differently about the trauma from your childhood. And it does. You think differently because the brain, and that's, we can go to chemistry. The brain actually essentially gets a different oxygen, different nutrients different chemicals and those chemicals make us see the world differently it creates different connections we think differently this is very self-helpish but i'm standing behind all of that two ways the ones that are active which is you do things like sleep and exercise eat healthy things that we all think we should do but then when you need them the most is when you're going into those spiraling moments of bad experiences and the passive ones you put yourself into people that exhibit the things you want to become and you let your brain by osmosis become that so how do you navigate the voice in your head as you're going through this? And how do you choose which voice to listen to? Where on the one hand, you're like, I know what I need to do to make my life better. And on the other hand, you're like, well, my life is so terrible. Why bother? You get other people to do it. So I think that where you're hitting correctly is that people are depressed. They definitely don't call people. They have no energy to do things. Depression is the symptom that where the brain essentially listens only to the voice that says, I can't do that. I only think about the bad experiences. I'm spot. Like that's where you need other people. So especially when you're not in this state, cultivate your peer group. Go to your friends and say, right now I'm in the best place I am. Right now I'm in the manic state. I need you when I'm not there. And I will say to you that I don't want you there. Don't listen to me. Listen to me mm -hmm. right now. And, it, and the sooner you do it, the better, the more you do it, the more people you have, you'll have different options. Like you'll have the best friend, the best girlfriend, the parents, the younger person. You'll, you, the communities, people underestimate again and again, the power of others to change our brain. We think we do it ourselves. We don't. We need others. 
the I have an example. It's a little longer, but it, it's it, please a few minutes and one, but I but I'll, uh, it's it's one that I think works well in explaining it. Uh, it it's it's an advocacy of of therapy in a, in a strange way. Uh, a lot of people say I don't need a therapist. I have my uh, uh, self. I know myself. I can do that. Like why? And, and I and I would say that it's true. You don't need the other person to rescue you. You need yourself to be, rescue you, but you need someone who's not thinking with you. So here's what I mean. When you're mm-hmm. a, a, in a swamp and you're starting to drown in the swamp, one option is to have someone with a little lifeboat come and pull you out. That's the approach of like, I don't do anything. Someone saves me. But another approach is that you find a little branch of tree that's not sinking and you hold on it and you pull yourself out. But the thing is, there needs to be a tree that's not sinking. There needs to be something outside of the swamp that you can hold on to and pull yourself. The tree doesn't pull you. It's just not sinking with you. So any person that's not drowning with you could be that outsider who you can hold on to and, and ask, get yourself out. They wouldn't say, I will tell you how to deal with a bad breakup. The answer is you should do this. That's not what the therapist or the best friend or the others would do. But by not being there with you, you will say, you will say, you know what? The more I talk about it to you, someone who is not in the bad situation as me, I see the answer. I know what to do. I don't even need to tell me that. But you need someone who is not with you thinking that you can talk to. And that would be your brain's way of seeing things from a different perspective and coming up with the answer yourself. So it's going to be you who's going to say yourself. It's not going to be a therapist or the best friend. It's going to be you. But you need someone else to be there so your brain will see the same situation from a different angle and come up with the answer. I love that. And and that's why the entire tagline of this show and everything that we've built in Think Unbroken is about be the hero of your own story. But all we do is facilitate the information and the education. And my thought has always been, if people are really paying attention to this show, it will change their life forever. Because I'm just simply trying to be the tree that's not in the swamp. So I think you're spot on because that's how my life has changed from people like you. And look, think about this. You've been an influence on my life, but that's only been through YouTube and education and videos and speeches and things like that. And it's like, people feel like they can't find the information or the community or the people. And it's like, no, it's out here. You just have to be willing to go find it in the different source that might fit for you. Brilliant. And I would say sometimes you will be the enemy because when you're depressed, you're so resistant to help that you should build that when you're not so that the help can come to you if you don't seek it. So if you're in depression and you don't leave home, Ideally, there will be someone, someone else who says, you know, I have not seen him for a while. I'm going to come knock on his door. And for that, you have to use the times where you're okay to build the network so that we can come to you when you're not okay. Yeah, that's brilliantly said, my friend. This conversation has been absolutely incredible and, and I appreciate your time greatly. Before I ask you my last question, can you please tell everyone where they can find you and learn more about you? Sure. As you can say, I'm on YouTube and I'm on everywhere. Even, even now, I, I installed Instagram for the first time, like, 20 years after everyone else and TikTok <laughs> 20 years after everyone else. I tried my best. I realized that there is a thirst for knowledge on neuroscience, which I always thought no one cares about. And I started to say, to say that I should do my best to do that. So practically, I have a website, moansurf.com. That's where I would start. Other than that, if you just look my name, I'm everywhere. YouTube and I don't know, TikTok now and Instagram and everywhere. And uh, on uh, Think and Broken, first place I would go. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that greatly. My last question for you, what does it mean to you to be unbroken? That when you think of the experience that seemingly uh, could break you, you would go through it again and 
not be scared. Mm, brilliantly said, my friend. Thank you so much for being here, Unbroken Nation. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, subscribe, comment, share, tell a friend. And until next time, my friends, be unbroken. I'll see ya. Thank you so much for listening to Think Unbroken. Please share this episode with someone who could use it and help us move forward in our mission of ending generational trauma in our lifetime. And if you would, please take five seconds to pop on iTunes or Spotify, hit that five star, leave a review. And you can also reach out to us on social at Michael Unbroken or at Think Unbroken. And of course, you can check out our YouTube channel at Think Unbroken. Thank you for being a part of Unbroken Nation, my friends. And until next time, be unbroken. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show. But I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of live coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the waitlist if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.